At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Lombacure, the world messenger, and I am beyond ecstatic to introduce you to my very special guest to my 100th episode of Legacy Leader Show. First of all, 100th episode because all of you are tuning in, listening, and supporting. And second of all, because of this amazing woman that agreed to show up and you will see why, we are going to truly get a completely different meaning what leadership and legacy is all about. She is mover and shaker. She's part of so many different movements. She is accomplished, successful. She has a doctorate in American studies in American business. She's published author of two books. She, one of her books, I love, I can't wait to depict. It's recognize and give thanks her memoir. The second one is I can finish college. She's obviously the higher education advocate and guide. She's so much more. And she's also the daughter of someone that has an amazing legacy that it's born into. Um, and best part, I will let her to share about that legacy as well as the legacy she created so you can follow those footsteps and do the same. Without further ado, allow me to introduce you to Marsha Cantarella. Marsha, how are you? I am fine and I am really delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much for finding time in your busy schedule. Thank you for being my special guest in my 100th episode of Legacy Leaders Show. And it's just so super to see your smiling face. Join me directly from New York City. How is everything in New York City? It is excellent. Um, it, it's very New York-like. There, You may hear background noise because they're drilling in the streets behind me. So. I hope that doesn't interfere. But uh, New York is is coming back to life. I've even been to the theater. Um, Yay! I saw MJ, Michael Jackson, play oh. last weekend. New York is coming back to life. Oh my goodness! I loved his music and his videos. An era of MTV, and I'm sure you guys remember that. Not all of you. How was watching his video spots over and over and dance? I was mesmerized. So how was the show about MJ? Oh, it was it. The audience was rocking out. <laughs> it was just great. <laughs> okay, Marsha. I have many reasons to come to New York, but that will be the one beside meeting you in person. So we might even want to take you again for another round of MJ and sure. rock together. Okay, <laughs> that's fantastic. So Marsha, you have tremendous background and history and things you accomplished uh, from really young uh, age. You were born into a legacy of someone who played, played an instrumental role in civil rights movement who was connected to not only to JFK Kennedy, obviously, but also Martin Luther King and some major players during that era. Your dad is Whitney Young. Do you mind just sharing a little bit for audience to understand 
what it means to be born at that era and when did you have a realization who your dad was and for everybody around the world that don't have no idea it's okay not all the history books are reflecting equally importance but now we have someone who can help us to really glean the the light of what history is all about through Marsha's lens, please. So um, I think one of the easy ways to help people understand some of my father's impact, if I say the word equal employment opportunity, if I say the words corporate social responsibility, I mean, those are just two of the the ideas that he put forward. Um, he uh, was the head of the National Urban League for, uh, for 10 years. He'd been involved with the Urban League movement um, for many years before that, but um, he was head of the National Urban League at the height of the civil rights movement. And he was the person who could bring everybody together. He was a conciliator. Um, he also had the capacity to build relationships with anyone. And, um, and so the role of the National Urban League had always been to help uplift people of color, um, the black community in particular, um, economically and, and socially. And so in order to do that, you have to go to where the jobs are. And that meant the private sector. And daddy was charming. Daddy was utterly charming. And he could charm CEOs. And he did. And he charmed them into writing checks. And he charmed them into creating job opportunities. Um, he charmed them into serving on his board. At one point, he put his board on buses and drove them to Harlem and Bed-Stuy so they could see what human devastation looked like. Um, and they loved him. They absolutely loved him. But he also was, was loved by Lyndon Johnson. Um, and Johnson could be prickly, but he and daddy could, you know, tell a couple of jokes, have a little bourbon, you know, and then, and then write the war on poverty. <laughs> Create a legacy that um, you know, includes the Head Start program, it includes Medicare, it includes, um, you know, uh, food stamps, it includes all of these programs which have allowed people to survive um, under difficult circumstances or just to just create some, an equal playing field um, for people. Um, he, he grew up um, as a child of the educators. So his parents actually ran a school in Kentucky called Lincoln Institute. And Lincoln Institute was meant to educate young black folk in how to do domestic service, how to run a farm, how to um, repair machinery. What the board didn't know um, was that when they weren't there, my grandfather ran a college prep school. And so my father and his sisters and all of the, you know, the, 
the the board would leave and the books would come out and um, and they were running a college prep program. So my father and his sisters um, all ended up going to Kentucky State University. They um, each of them uh, graduated and and in their own right became leaders. My uh, Aunt Eleanor was the first African-American dean at University of Louisville. My Aunt Arnita was one of the architects of the Head Start program and was on the faculty at the University of Chicago. And then there was my dad. So my grandkids are fifth generation going to college this year. Wow, <laughs> wow congratulations, Bo, that is epic. And how rare that is specifically in black community, Marcia. Well, um, you know, this was an institution that then, like many of the, the historically black colleges, um, you know, Morehouse and Spelman and Tuskegee and all of these institutions, um, you know, graduated people who have gone on to do extraordinary things. Just in my in my parents' class. Um, Ursa Poston, who became my kind of godmother, um, was probably the closest confidant to Governor Nelson Rockefeller in New York State. But then she went on to become the highest ranking woman in a federal position in Washington. Um, uh, one of their classmates, Harvey Russell, uh, became the first corporate vice president, uh, black corporate vice president. Uh, he was at PepsiCo. Um, kind of the list goes on, you know, you kind of extrapolate from, from just that small cohort, right? Um, so, you know, there were these things going on uh, when the, the civil rights movement emerged, it was student driven. And, you know, all of the people who were you know, on the faculty at places like Atlanta University where my dad was or um, Morehouse and Spelman and, and any of the other campuses, um, for the most part, you know, you're, de you're dealing with black faculty. Yes. Right, so they had to have college degrees and PhDs. Yes. So and, and we forget that, you know, that that's all part of, of who we are and what's made, um, uh, things better, not right, but better, um, so that we can now at least, you know, very often be in positions to continue to make change. Wow, what a powerful sharing, what a powerful bringing, and thank you so much for highlighting how much your father contributed in landscape of business, as you said, and those regulatory bodies that are still honored and they're fundamental and how corporate America is run. So that is beyond obviously just the civil movement <laughs> and civil rights. And I'm so glad you shared that with us because again, I knew that I will not do justice uh, from anything uh, obviously that you so personally know and, and, and hold uh, amazing uh, history with your family and amazing obviously legacy. But do you want to share and how was for you to be born into that legacy? When did you realize uh, that 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 is so powerful and different, and and um, that you ha has also certain weights on your shoulder and a responsibility in a way, right? Well, in some ways, um, 
I didn't think about it a lot. I think, um, you know, the people that we associated with um, included uh, people like Ken and Mamie Clark. Ken Clark was the psycho psychologist who gave the information that turned the tide on the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Um, well, he and his wife, who was also a psychologist, um, they hung out with us as did their kids. Um, and, and there were other families, you know, as well. Um, and so, you know, we were kind of surrounded by, you know, other black folks of privilege. Um, uh, and, and whose kids, interestingly, have uh, themselves continued into, you know, second and third generations to carry a legacy. For example, my father's best friend um, was the uh, head of the, uh, um, I'm sorry, the uh, <laughs> head of the national um, college program. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. Um, but his grandson um, is now the president at Rutgers. Wow. So there is this, you know, continuum. Yes, when we have a representation, when we see what's possible, when we raise the bar, right? Then, right. then it's such a easier to um, progress and have the continuum because we're standing on the shoulders of the giants, right? And why your dad was such a giant? I mean, he not only had a conversations and impact and relationship during the time of Jeff Kennedy era, right? But also during the time of civil rights movement and tremendous support of Martin Luther King that so many people actually don't know. So do you mind sharing a little bit about those those times and, and times where there's a lot of volatility and risk and, and, and opposition and so much uh, change, um, you know, from moment to moment and, and to, to be still so much dedicated for to do greater good and to do the right thing despite how high stakes and risks were there at that time. Well, um, and there certainly were high stakes and risks. Um, uh, you know, there was what was, you know, called the, the big five or the big six, depending on, on who was in the room, but uh, included Roy Wilkins, um, who was actually in graduate school at the University of Minnesota at the same time my parents were in grad school there. Um, uh, obviously, Martin. Um, there was John Lewis, who was part of it. So, it was like, you know, the they all came together, the, the big six, and, and occasionally included Dorothy Height, who has headed the National Council of Negro Women. So, um, so occasionally her voice was in the room as well. Um, and, you know, sometimes they argued, but they talked, they strategized. Each, each one had a different sort of place in the movement. Um, we think of John Lewis and, and the young people. We think of Martin as the spiritual leader. Um, Roy was obviously kind of doing the, the background legal stuff to make sure that um, uh, things were thought of in terms of legal strategy as well. 
And um, so, you know, they were, they were collaborators. They cared about each other. I love how you share that, uh, that each of them had a different role, but then also had a different perspective point of view, but they came together. And yep. as a result, the movement worked. It was effective. And uh, everybody took their own risk, but also their own strengths and made magic happen. And do you mind for everyone that, that is on their edge of their seats, what was the role of your dad? He was obviously well known in something that um, it's being described in the power broker, uh, the power broker, right? Right. Uh, beautiful PBS documentary. And, yes. Uh, where there was a lot of uh, information about him and some really or maybe the last known fact for others is that that documentary was premiered in White House with Michelle Obama uh, premiering and, and, and speaking about it and its importance. Yeah. So please tell us how yeah. the power broker, your dad, Whitney Young, played fundamental role and how the power brokerage today and things that we're seeing in vol volatile times around the world uh, play a huge role, please. Well, you know, I wish we had more, more of my dad, more power brokers um, uh, right now, um, because he, he was able to talk to all sorts of people and bring them together. And, um, and he began, you know, when he was in graduate school and he was in school of social work at, at the University of Minnesota. Um, in fact, he began during World War II. Um, he was a sergeant, the troops were segregated. So he was overseeing African-American troops. And then there were the white troops and the senior officers were all white over everybody. Um, and the African-American troops of course were facing discrimination. And my dad would negotiate um, uh, to get some of that discrimination to be dispersed, dismissed. Um, but he also did it by making friends yeah. of the white officers yes. to the extent that one of those officers, when the war ended, invited my father to be best man at his wedding. Wow, what an honor and what amazing friendship, no matter what of those divisions that were artificially imposed on right. And so when daddy got to the University of Minnesota, um, one of the things he did was he went and he, he hung out at a department store and he watched the traffic and he looked to see how many black folks were coming into the department store and um, what departments and he, he kept data, he kept information. Um, he then compiled a report, which he was able to take to the president of the store. And he made the point that, you know, if you wanted to see more traffic from the African-American community, you had to have increased the number of salespeople who could serve them. Yes. And he made his case and they did, and it worked, right? But he early on knew the power of data. Mm. And that was always part of his strategy. What a clever man at that time. You're right. Like right now we're seeing exponential amounts of data, but even largest companies, Fortune 500, don't leverage and utilize effectively 
And, and that is so powerful. I remember having an argument with him and I don't know what we were arguing about. I was 14. At 14, you argue about everything. So, <laughs> um, uh, so I was arguing with him about something. And, and the next day he came home from work and in his briefcase, he had information to refute my point. Wow. He had had the staff put together material for me to refute um, whatever it was. And, um, and that was my first glimmer into the power of having information. Leaping forward, um, you know, like many of us, um, I was in opposition to the Vietnam War, um, particularly when I was in college, I went to Bryn Mawr. And um, there were what were called teach-ins on, on our campus and, and other campuses where after dinner, you'd go to a classroom or in a uh, dorm lounge or whatever, and faculty would come in and, and share with us, you know, explanations about the war because, you know, we had classmates who were being drafted um, and, and certainly the, the rate of African-Americans who didn't get college deferments and so on were getting drafted at, at an even greater rate. Um, so this was, you know, this was a really clearly important issue, the Vietnam War. Um, my father couldn't say anything about the war because of his relationship with Lyndon Johnson. And he found himself um, sitting on the dais with McGeorge Bundy at a dinner uh, McGeorge Bundy was the Undersecretary of State. And uh, so Daddy proceeded to tell the Undersecretary of State what his Bryn Mawr daughter thought of the war. Ooh. At the end of the meal, I was there. He brings McGeorge Bundy down and introduces me as the daughter whose views Daddy had shared. And then Daddy walks off and leaves me with the Undersecretary of State. I'm, you know, all of 19, right? What do I know about protocol? So of course I'm going to argue with the Undersecretary of State. So, <laughs> why not? <laughs> well, leap forward many years later, um, uh, my husband and I met McGeorge Bundy at a dinner and I reminded him of this story and he said, and history proved you right, um, which was very gracious of him. Um, but, you know, I learned these things from, you know, the interaction with my father. Mm -hmm. You know, data is important. You know, don't just talk if you don't know what you're talking about, right? Yes, yes, yes. Because everybody can have an opinion, but what is that substantiated about? What the make us to feel certain way? It's right. a great way to fact check and also making sure that we're not just a part of the noise, but we're part of the solution, right? right? And how do we leverage that? And I love who your father was as a girl, as a, as a female, as a young 14 years old, <laughs> to give you that chance and opportunity. I mean, brilliant educator's mind. I just can't even imagine like how amazing that must felt because in the same time, not being afraid of the title, not being afraid to say, because he knew what foundation you have and where you're coming from. And it's also so powerful to see because we're seeing even just today, how are right. male versus female are treated in same capacity, regardless how skilled, capable, and able they are, uh, but just that we have a different 
level of need to prove ourselves, not only to be in the room, a little alone to speak in the room. Right, right. And, and having gone to an all women's college, um, we were a feisty bunch. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we took on things that were happening at the college that, you know, we um, thought were archaic rules, um, some of which, you know, even we had African-American maids serving our meals, um, cleaning our rooms. Um, um, we thought this was ridiculous. And so, you know, the students, you know, protested. Um, uh, the president of my class, who then became president of, of uh, the student body, um, you know, made the case to the administration. The administration listened um, and, and action was taken. And, and uh, you know, those folks were found new, better jobs on campus. Um, but the president of our class, who um, was the president of the student body, also later became president of Harvard, Drew Faust. Um, just had dinner with Drew last week. Um, and, you know, she carried that um, attitude when she was president of Harvard. When she finally uh, retired from Harvard, she left behind four African-American women deans. What an amazing legacy and opening doors and putting things in perspective and helping one another. It's just so beautiful when women support a woman and, and, and not seen as a competition, but seen as an opening doors for future generation. And given that amazing diverse perspective, because it's a reason why we think and act differently, isn't it? But it's also different. And, and that richness of that diverse thinking that brings so many amazing solutions. Well, then there's the flip side of that. Yes. And that speaks to the work that I've been doing most recently. Um, uh, you know, I've worked at NYU um, and, um, worked there on, on helping to assure that students of color, you know, survived and thrived. And, and we did an amazing job there. Um, your friend Sola can <laughs> speak to, <laughs> to her experience when I, when I knew her there um, and the extraordinary things that her classmates are doing. Um, and then I went from NYU to Princeton um, and, uh, Actually, my boss there had written a biography of my father. Um, and I was, I was a dean at Princeton working on, um, as a dean for the junior class, um, which I always thought was ironic because my junior year of college was my worst year of college. So I thought, this is God's little joke that uh, I get to help make sure that these students don't do in their junior year the stuff that I did. Um, uh, but I met extraordinary students and I had a chance to, um, you know, to really lift up uh, the possibility for more excellence among students of color, more women. Part of my job was to groom students for um, the Rhodes, the Marshall, the prestigious fellowships. And um, we wanted to have more diversity in the pool. 
And that meant that I'd you know, have to bring students into my office and say, look, you've got a 3.8 GPA. There's absolutely no reason why you can't do this. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a result, I, I, you know, met some amazing, amazing students. And now those students, many of them are in my life. Um, but it's payback. <laughs> so um, one young man from, from Princeton who um, his, his parentage was Caribbean and they wanted him to be a doctor. And by his junior year, he knew very well that A, he didn't want to be a doctor and B, the courses were not courses that you know, were working for him. Um, and what was he going to do when I said, what would you like to do? And he said, I want to, I want to do sports management. He was an athlete. So I said, well, you could be, you could get an MBA or you can get a law degree and, you know, that would prepare you. And I, and I talked to his parents and I talked them off the cliff and said, you know, look, he'll be prestigious. He will be fine. And, you know, it doesn't have to be medicine. It can be something else. Um, so he went off to law school. He ended up as a district attorney in New York for a while. And then he ended up as a U.S. attorney. And then when the, um, uh, you know, when the Obama administration left, then he left, you know, being a U.S. attorney. But he is currently at the National Basketball Players Association. Wow, well, what a sort of amazing story. Well, now it's time for him to pay back. <laughs> so I work with young men at Hunter in our CUNY Blackmail Initiative. And I haul David in to speak to them Fantastic. and to tell them what's possible for them. Wow. The other thing that I've now been able to do is take some of my former students and get them onto boards of not-for-profit organizations. So I'm on the board of an organization called Read Alliance, and David is now on the board of Read Alliance. I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm sure that he loves that payback because it's such an honor to be part of something like it, but it's also a great way to give back to future generations and, 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 and really share because you obviously are known as phenomenal mentor. Everybody that I had a chance to, to when, when your name comes about, everybody talks about your mentorship and how giving, caring you are and how not only you know them very well, but also help them to truly uh, solve sometimes, sometimes mission impossible, right? These challenging, difficult uh, decisions that can really be detrimental and, and, and how much do you honestly care? So... First of all, kudos. And um, do you mind sharing for everybody else, like what it really takes to be a phenomenal mentor like yourself? Because the footprints you're creating, you already have amazing legacy that you established separate from your famous father. But, but, but obviously you're doing so much beyond and above. So where, where's the drive, passion coming from? And, and what do you think it's a secret sauce so that others can replicate and be doing greater good for future generation of phenomenal leaders? Well, I mean, I, I you know, going back to when I was working at, at, at NYU and I had that um, middle of the night epiphany that in running the academic achievement program, I had to step away. 
I had to empower them and, you know, offer some tools, offer ideas, but let them have the ownership. Wow. Um, and, you know, and when I did that, um, they really, at first they were petrified. <laughs> and then, then they got bossy. Um, I, I, was, I had one of the few offices that had, I had a conference table in my, in my office. And on Wednesday afternoons, they would come in and tell me to go home at five o'clock because they needed my conference table. So, yeah. <laughs> so five o'clock, I would go home on Wednesdays. <laughs> um, yeah, they're in charge. Um, you know, I love when that happens. I love when they kind of find, you know, their own voices. And, you know, and I keep reflecting back to what I felt and what I was doing and what I was thinking when I was their age. And um, uh, so, you know, that's part of the reason that, that with my, my CUNY young men, um, I try to bring in young men, um, various stages of their careers, but um, bringing in young men like David, um, or even, you know, one of my former Princeton students who's a nice Jewish kid, um, and he, uh, when I met him at Princeton, he was trying to figure out what to do with his junior thesis um, in American history. He was wanted to have something that had to do with Europe. I said, do you know anything about the Italian, um, uh, the, the Italian resistance um, and the anti-fascist movement and um, what happened during World War II? And he said, no. And I said, you need to talk to my mother-in-law, <laughs> who was in her 90s at that point. And um, uh, my late husband's family was Italian. And so he ended up doing this amazing paper. He won the junior thesis prize. And I figured, okay, you know, Greg, you owe me. <laughs> so I've had Greg not only speak to my students at Hunter on more than one occasion, but he has taken um, a couple, one in particular under his wing, who is now working at Bloomberg. Wow. And wow, um, that is amazing. One of his other brothers is at Accenture. And um, so, you know, wherever I can find people who can help my students see themselves yes. in a particular way. There was one young man who, um, you know, West, West Moore, you know of West Moore, I'm sure. Yes. yes. Um, Wes's sister was one of my kids at Princeton. Shawnee Moore was one of, one of my Princeton kids. And um, so I got to know the family pretty well and um, worked on a documentary that, that Wes did. And um, so, um, I, at one point, Wes's mom called and said there was a young man that she wanted me to mentor. And of course, you know, I always say, whatever Joy wants, sure. Um, so I met with him and he was interested in finding how to, you know, kind of, he had this corporate job, but it wasn't feeding his soul. How could he feed his soul? So, um, so I got him onto, an, onto a board. <laughs> and then I had him come talk to my Hunter students and he, and he said to them, look, you know, 
if you want to start making connections, then you do it, you know, immediately. And he said, I'm going to leave my phone number. And if you want to spend time with me, here's how you do it. You call me, you say you want 15 minutes of my time, and I will likely say yes. And um, so his name is Kenny. Kenny called me um, about an hour later. He said, I wasn't out of the building before I had a call from Stefan. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he ended up spending many hours with Stefan, who is now getting his MBA. Um, But, you know, if I can bring these guys, role models, um, who can actually connect with them, um, that's, you know, that's better than hearing from me, right? It's, it's seeing and hearing from people who are closer in age, who are guys themselves, um, and who have made it work for them, and clearly who have values. Um, so I think of myself um, as much as anything as a connector. Seems like you're following amazing footsteps of your dad and creating, again, you already created and creating even more so that power of culture, of the cultural broker, educator broker, the just the power broker, period, because that goes beyond, stems from education, higher education as an advocate, obviously, and as a guide, but you, you are helping future generations of leaders to be tapping to not only their passions and desires, but to really see what's possible by raising the bar and opening the doors and opening opportunities. And I think that, as you said, yes, more of us need to exist uh, that, that are thinking alike and, and, and that are really eager to see what else can we do? How else can we serve, right? With servant leadership, how else we can support everyone to be more and become more and, and, and not compete and not feel like, you know, um, having all of these limitations and mindset of what's in there for me. Uh, because uh, we were really seeing a lot of shift even in culturally in the United States on many levels. And I just want to say thank you for leading the way and blazing the path and really showing what's really all about. As a, as a former educator that always keeps saying, I'm always, once educator, always educator. I just wanted to say I kudo you uh, for, for that. And, and knowing, as you said, um, since like you're so good at helping people to jump off the cliff, <laughs> which is a great attribute of mentor, but great attribute of leader when you know when to lead away and when also step aside and let others and be behind. Let them uh, take their own uh, reins of their own future in their own hands. And I think that is so powerful. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, so with that, I mean, Tima and Shane Marsha, obviously you had a big shoes to fill all your life without probably realizing, uh, but then later more you were aware of as you craft your, your path. Do you mind sharing for audience that is really not sometimes even believing or, or thinking how it was hard to truly be the black woman and trailblazer. You were trailblazer even in the business arena uh, and in, 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 
before you converted into education and found your deep passion and, and deeper meaning. But even there in, in business arena, you were trailblazing in communication for some major corporations of Fortune 500. And um, a lot of people don't really still understand what was at that time and throughout all of your life to be this powerful, educated, smart, capable woman that constantly had to prove herself or do things uh, in a way so that others would accept and, and things that we're seeing today in today's environments and, and how is that hopefully changing? So do you want to share a little bit about that so that people are more aware of it? And as a result, when we have awareness, when we know more, right, we can do better. So what would you say to that? Well, I would, uh, first thing I would say is that um, I'm, you know, I'm an introvert. I mean, I, I really am. Um, they say an introvert is somebody who, who refuels in solitude and um, <laughs> COVID certainly allowed lots of solitude, maybe, maybe more refueling in solitude than I could, than I could want. But um, uh, so I, I wasn't somebody who would put myself out there. Um, my dad would nudge, you know, so he would put me out there. Um, and then um, when I uh, met my, my second husband, um, the, the love of my life husband, Francesco, um, he was 14 years older and he was already a corporate vice president at Chase. Um, and, and he actually had a relationship with my father um, before he and I ever met. Wow. And so we were both doing corporate responsibility work. Um, there was a bunch of us who were young kids kind of doing this work um, in our 20s, maybe early 30s. And as women, um, so, you know, as a Black person and a woman, um, where, you know, some of my colleagues in the company, I was at Avon, um, um, the guys would have secretaries. I didn't. And I, my typing is... It was terrible. So the secretaries would take pity on me and do my work. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, there was just that. But I had had a course at Renmar um, uh, on legal stuff. And so I wrote a memo that talked about um, or took a dive into, you know, the wages and the positions that women and people of color held in the company. And I crafted it so that it sounded very legal, right? Well, a bunch of us got raises because um, I had hit a nerve. But then, you know, time went on and I wasn't getting promoted. Um, I got one promotion and then nothing. Um, and Francesco and I were on vacation we were driving through Canada. He pulls out a legal pad and a pen and he says, I'm not stopping the car until you start writing the presentation that you need to do to get the promotion that you're entitled to. Wow, what an amazing, supportive life partner. And so, and, yep. Wow. So I did and he coached me and I got the promotion and I ended up being not only the first African-American, but the youngest, first African-American, first woman and youngest person um, at age 29 to be promoted to the director level. 
in the company. Wow, that is outstanding, which also show how early you also detected what's important to have a great role models and mentors in your own life that are people that are in your corner that they see your brilliance and they want to also help you to unfold the gorgeous, beautiful genius and, and that every single one of us have, right? But it's that just depends where you are and who you are with that truly want to help let you shine. Well, and, and another example of that, when I was at NYU and I had been teaching and I had earned the doctorate and I was working with my students. And so I had this sort of dual, you know, part academic, part um, uh, administrator role. And, and so there was the question of, you know, do, which one do I want to be? Um, and so Francesco said, call Pat. Pat McPherson had been my dean at Bryn Mawr and had become president of the college. She was president of the college when I delivered my stepdaughter into her hands at Bryn Mawr. Um, and Francesca kept saying, call Pat. And I kept saying, Pat's busy. <laughs> he kept saying, call Pat. And I called Pat and Pat said, talk to Nancy. Nancy Malfield was dean of the college at Princeton. She had written the first biography of my father. So we had talked many years before when she was writing that biography, but we hadn't talked since. Um, and so she was um, dean of the college, but she was also still teaching. And so Pat's point was Nancy's doing both. But Nancy had an opening and that's how I ended up as a dean at Princeton. Wow. Because, you know, Francesco said, call your mentor and my mentor <laughs> made me make the next call and um uh so you know it was it was not nothing of my doing i got nudged along the way right yes but 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 the thing is this you show up you were bold you were open you were coachable you're willing to do what it takes to go to that next step. You desire that, you knew what that will do for you, but also for everybody else. And that's the beauty. A lot of times people climb as they call it the ladder or get to these positions, but they don't open the door for others. And, and, and in contrary, what you, you're a phenomenal role model and everybody watching and listening, what it takes not only to get there and how you get there, not as they call it over that body, but with collaboration collaboration, with respect, with, with um, shared, uh, obviously, values, right? And at the same time, people will back you up and people will do everything that you possibly thought they can't to have you to succeed because they know where you're coming from. They know what you're all about and, and, and why is this so important, not only just for you, but also for others. So kudos uh, for being a dean in such a prestigious Ivy League university first of all and and all of the trajectory that you do and how you reshape in higher education uh and we have a lot of work to do don't we in that space we do. Alone, we in this do. country alone or globally we do that i mean that's why you know i wrote i wrote the book i can finish college i was um actually thanks to pat mcpherson um i ended up going to uh, Hunter after I left um, Princeton. Um, uh, Francesco had passed away. My stepdaughter was having our first grandchild. I could, being commuting out to Princeton, I needed to be in the city. I needed to be with my family. 
And, um, and so Pat again said, you know, there's an opening at Hunter. Um, and so I was able to, to be there. Um, and then I realized that I was really exhausted. Um, there was just, you know, there had been too much going on. It was after 9-11, it was, I was stressed out. And, yeah. um, and so I have stayed at Hunter in, in a consulting role, working with the Black Male Initiative. Um, um, and that's because, again, that's again, because of Pat. But one of the things having been in at NYU, having been at Princeton, having been at Hunter, um, I consistently found that particularly first generation, low income and students of color had no idea of how to navigate college. You know, as I said, my grandkids are going into college as fifth gen. Um, they've got all the information and all the support that, you know, anybody could imagine. They're fine. But if, if this is, you know, your first step your first foray into, into the higher education space, um, you know, it is not easy. And um, the terminology, you know, the who does what, what are the relationships, what are the protocols? Um, and what they don't understand is that everybody at the college, I mean, we are not the best paid people in the universe. Right? Yes. As they say, you're, you're not doing for money, you're doing for They're passion not... and you for heart. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so they, you know, students should feel that free to, you know, go barging into an advisor's office or um, talk to their professors. And, um, but, you know, a first gen student doesn't even know what the titles mean mean or you know um what's the protocol for talking to a professor so so i wrote i can finish college um to speak to that student to kind of really break it all down and explain everything that they could want to know and to do it very often through stories a lot of student voice there are lots and lots of stories some that i refer to as cautionary tales which means don't do what this kid did, right? <laughs> I always disguise the names. I never do the real names for the people. But, you know, I, I will describe the scenario of you know, something a kid did that was probably not a good idea. Um, and then I have uh, what I just call stories of people who did the right thing. You know, this is, this is good strategy. And, you know, you can do, you can do what, what this person did and that's good. Um, when I got to the time management chapter, I went to four of the students that I had known over the years, NYU, Princeton, Hunter, um, who had been the kind of kid who had a job, was chairman of two clubs, and had a, you know, 3.9 GPA, right? Um, they were doing it all. Somehow they were managed, managing to do it all. And so I, I went to the four of them from each of those different places. And I said, just give me, you know, tell me what you did, right? By this time they had graduated um, and they were living real lives. Um, I said, so tell me, write down what you did. What was your strategy for managing time? And so they all did. And, um, and I just plopped it right in the book. I hardly edited their words. It's just, it's what they said. Um, and so they're real life examples of, you know, this is how you can do this. 
I have an annual New Year's Day party that I've done uh, sort of family tradition at this point um, for years. And I, yeah, I invite former students and colleagues and whoever. Um, and so, so the four of them came and they introduced each other by their page numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so they recognized themselves and they knew. But it's so beautiful because it's relatable and it's unfiltered. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so and and all of them are have remained good friends i'm i'm still close to one of them just actually this week um sent me the picture of his newborn oh, and that is um, so beautiful so, how you hold holding all these relationships so close anyway please continue yeah no as you say he, um apparently he sent pictures to his parents and then i was next on the list <laughs> it was adorable wow <laughs> Yes, that, that I, I just love how those that it's personal and it's and it's a deep and how these connections, as you said, last lifetime and, and I can feel in your voice so much pride uh, because you made a, such a huge difference in, in, in so many people's lives and that continues and echoes for generations to come. But what I'm realizing as I'm listening to you, Marsha, what you did for all of them and I can answer, unfortunately, to some amazing uh, secret sauce is you help them to think, help them to believe in themselves, help them to understand that you are there in their corner. If, if nobody else is there, you are there. And then also by knowing how to think, knowing you have support and knowing you have a safety net, it's easier to take a risk. And I have to say, a foreigner, as a former refugee, as working with immigrants, also, that is additional population that has a struggle. How do you navigate something so different than anything else to being exposed? How do you navigate complexities and not only culturally, but also with the systems and, and, and these uh, hidden expectations that you don't have no idea? And then how often sometimes things can be trial and error and embarrassing or painful. And, and not everybody have that muscle, right? To be vulnerable, to be visible, to fail. And, and still continue to show up, right? Because it's it's right. really, really hard. Right, and, and actually one of these students, the one who sent me a picture of his baby, um, is an immigrant family. Mm. Um, and I've, I've met his, his parents and his grandmother and, um, but yeah, now it's an Eastern European immigrant family. Nice, that is powerful. So with that in mind, Marsha, obviously, uh, you did so much and continue to do so much more. What is in the bucket list and what would you like your legacy to be? I mean, you have so many legacies within the legacy already, but what, what are you striving in this chapter of your life with this accumulated tremendous experience and wisdom and also understanding where we're at as a country, as a nation and where we're at as a world? Uh, could you please share that from that perspective? Um, I think it's what I'm about these days is mostly kind of um, passing the torch. Um, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm beginning to bring on to the boards where I serve people who were my kids, right? Um, and so they're 20 or 30 years younger, but they are in positions of authority and they, you know, um, they are wonderful. One, one of the ones who um was was in the book on time management um 
is now a uh, PBS producer. Well, I've connected her wow. to um, my college classmate, Lynn Meadow, who runs the Manhattan Theater Club. And Lynn's wanted me on her board for a long time. And I kept saying no, because I, I've, I'm on other boards and I don't have time. Well, got this kid to do it. <laughs> so, Lynn is happy. Payback again. <laughs> Yep. So, so I love your paybacks. <laughs> <laughs> They're the best paybacks ever. Bring it on. <laughs> so, I'm on the board of a small college. Um, there's a young woman that I know from um, uh, from Bryn Mawr, from uh, my work with the Bryn Mawr Alumni Association, and she's you know much again much younger than I am, but. Um, brilliant um, African-American young woman, um, many degrees, you know, including Oxford and stuff. Um, and, um, you know, as I looked around the table at our board meeting for the small college, St. Elizabeth University, um, I'm thinking, you know, we, we need some, some more younger voices here. And, yes. and I'm on the committee where I can have a hand in that. And so, um, so yeah, so I've got this young woman who I knew from Bryn Mawr and she's joining the board as of June 1st. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm actually on the prowl to um, encourage um, particularly, you know, more women, more people of color to identify them, to um, see that they are in places where, you know, they can maybe over the course of the next 10 years um have an impact so that's the current mission and that is brilliant and so beautiful beautiful and giving and and necessary so thank you for again trailblazing for everyone to follow the suit and things that you're doing but ultimately what would you like to be remembered for i mean i'm sure uh, it's so many reasons that already people remember you for, and, and I love how you are living your legacy, not just leaving, uh, and, and, and how amazing it is for others to take the courage and live their legacy and lead their legacy. So what would you like to be remembered for? I think I'd like to be remembered maybe as, as a connector. Maybe that's it. Um, one of the things that, sorry for the background noise of the ambulance. It's okay. That's the New York City for you guys. If you didn't have a chance to go to, actually, that's been rather quiet given how insanely big city is and how much is going on every minute in that city. Right, right. So, um, one of the things that was my objective when um, when I wrote the memoir, Recognize and Give Thanks, was to do just that, to recognize people who have been unsung and to thank the many people who have been real gifts in my life. Um, and um, to help the reader, especially if they are young, um, to see the power of connection. Um, to see the extent to which connections can also be um, kind of web-like, um, that you know, there are intersections that um, 
you know, you may not anticipate. Uh, to give an example, uh, there's a woman, Mil Mildred Leaked. Mil Millie was the founder of the Trickle Up program, which does microfinance um, for the poorest around the world. And um, Millie was, um, you know, she had, she worked at the UN. Um, she had a number of roles, but then she and her husband created the Trickle Up program. And my husband was invited to be on the board. And um, when he went to his first meeting and I asked who was there, one of the people he mentioned was a guy named Chet Berger. Chet Berger had been on my father's board. Chet Berger knew me when I was a kid. Wow. And, and there, and so Chet and I reconnected and he was also, he, he was known as the Dean of Public Relations. He was like one of the most powerful people in the public relations universe. Um, and so Chet became, especially after, after my husband died, Chet became like the grandfather to me. Um, but Millie was my best friend. And, um, uh, her daughter had been at Bryn Mawr when I was at Bryn Mawr. We, she was a couple of years ahead of me, so we didn't connect then, but we connected since um, a lot. And, um, but Millie was the kind of leader, the kind of woman as she aged, and she's, she's a role model in that um, we came home from uh, a trip to Paris I mean, from a trip to Alaska. The phone rang and it was Millie inviting us to a 4th of July party on her terrace the next day. What you didn't know is that Millie had just gotten off a flight from Paris herself just then. And she's planning this enormous party for the next day. And she was probably 75. And you know, and everybody loved Millie's parties. You would find, you know, you'd find CEOs, you'd find judges, you'd find UN delegates, you'd find everybody. If you wanted to meet people, you'd go to one of Millie's parties. And that's what she was doing. She was doing it not once, but twice. Amazing. See if I can make that go away. Um, you're the most wanted person and oh. very busy so life happens in between and and i'm just so glad because again for our listeners and um, listen it's just okay. so important to to as you as you said to stay connected and and and, and be able to people to access to you so back to millie and her parties. so millie so millie and her parties um yeah, I mean, she would have, you know, just everybody there. And so that time, because it was the 4th of July and her, her apartment overlooked the river, there was going to be the sailing ships on the 4th of July, you know, the parade of ships. Um, and then that evening, there would be the fireworks. So she had one group of people coming for lunch, and then they all went away. And then she had another group coming for dinner. And, um, you know, we, we were part of both groups. We went for lunch and we went for dinner. Um, but she 
she was also the founder or a, a one of the founders of um, colleges now known as, as Metropolitan College of New York, uh, which has a vocational orientation and is targeting uh, first generation people um, who are probably underemployed, right? Uh, so that they get a degree. And, and I worked there briefly. Um, but, you know, in addition to trickle up, she was helping um, Audrey Cohen who created the college to build that institution. So I've just, you know, I've had these amazing people, role models around. Um, and, um, and that's been just an, an, an incredible gift. That's, um, yeah, that's been my treasure. And, that, and, that, and that's really part of, so much part of what I wanted to share and, and recognize and give thanks um, is to have other people recognize and give thanks for the people that I have had the honor and the pleasure to know. That is beautiful, and and it's such a beautiful like circle of life, right? And then and, and events and things you are now putting together so that you can give it back, but also groom the future generation that's going to be able to again learn from elder, as I call it, uh, uh, elders that have so much wisdom and knowledge, and also opportunities to really elevate everyone and in society and community and create tremendous success. So what an exceptional legacy to have and build and continue building. Marsha, if you can please just say something in closing for our audience that is being with, with us, listen to this amazing share. Uh, what would you give one single advice for times that we live in as we're putting our leadership hat and, and, and trying to contribute in the best possible way. What would you say with all of that amazing exposure of wise and uh, capable and able people that mentored you, that supported you, and that you then in return start mentoring, supporting, and have now decades of uh, tremendous success? Um, I guess I would say well, one, one of the lessons from my father was, um, you know, make sure you know what you're talking about. <laughs> do, do your homework. Um, and then figure out what it is that um, is your niche. Where, where is your strength? Um, and, and try to play to that strength. Um, and yeah, and that actually that was something that that again my my husband used to say to me all the time, um, and and in turn say to our you know said to our kids, um, and who are thriving themselves. Um, so yeah, kind of find your find what it is that you care about, that you're good at, um, and let that lead you. How. Mm, powerful, simple yet insanely profound and powerful. 
thank you, Marsha, for being with us on Legacy Leader Show by sharing your heart, your knowledge, and, and beautiful stories by giving us a little bit better insights of who was your father, the famous Whitney Young, and how was to be raised by someone like him and be on, these, on the shoulder of giants, but also crafting and creating your amazing legacy and living and leading and uh, everybody else that can follow the suit and do the same. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.